All right, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 as we, uh, we carry on our study of Acts. Um, I, again, I always want you to bring your Bible, your iPhone that has your Bible, the scrolls, your prayer journal that we conveniently printed the book of Acts in for you. Uh, I've written in mine. I try to just stay up. I write just kind of random comments sometimes about the passage. Sometimes I write about what's going on in my life. You can do with that journal whatever you want. It's there, it's there to help you with your prayer life and your relationship with God. <clears throat> but speaking of sports, before we dig in, Walter Johnson, who was one of the great pitchers of, of all time, pitched in the 1920s with the Washington Senators. Here's a picture of, of the great Walter Johnson. At 48 years old, they challenged Walter Johnson to throw a silver dollar across the Rappahannock River. How many of you have ever seen the Rappahannock River? All right. I've seen it in Richmond. It's, a, it's not a normal river. It's wide and it's not very deep and it's full of rocks. But it's a long way across the Rappahannock. It plays a big part in Civil War history and... Anyway, at 48 years old, Walter Johnson winds up and he throws a silver dollar almost 400 feet across the Rappahannock River. A lot of people have doubted that that story happened, but if I understand it correctly, back then many money went a lot further than it does now. <clears throat> My wife was doing laundry the other day, and I was doing what most men do while my wife was doing laundry, watching television. Well done. And uh, she comes out, got the laundry all folded, and she's walking along, and one of our dogs got under her feet and tripped her up, and the clothes went everywhere. I watched the entire thing unfold. Well done. Well done. You guys make me proud. All right, we're actually going somewhere with that, so stay with me. I, I got to thinking about what's happening. I, well, I read the joke, <clears throat> but I'm obviously caught up with what's happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, by the way, uh, you are right now are working all over Ukraine. You're in Poland. Uh, you're in Moldova. You're in Bulgaria. You are in um, Romania. Uh, you, you are providing, at the very least, you're providing for over 300 families. We are their food, their clothes, their gasoline. We're, they're driving in, rescuing more people, bringing them out. There's not a home in Poland that doesn't have another family that they never met before last week living in their home. That's, that's what's happening for real. Um, <clears throat> Last week, and this is still open online, it's Disaster Relief. If you click Disaster Relief, Ukraine uh, will come up. There's a box out in the lobby if you'd like to give it that way. But last week, just to let you know, you gave $58,000 to that mission. Um, I, believe, I believe as of Saturday, we already have 50000 on the ground. Uh, and in all those countries that I mentioned, we, uh, because we can put it right into bank accounts, so they, they're out buying gas and food right on the spot. So uh, whatever we get this weekend, along with what we got left, we'll get it out next week. We're not sitting on it. So um, that's that. But anyway, I got, to, I got to thinking about what's going on there. And listen, I'm not in charge of the Ukrainian army, the Russian army, the U.S. army. 
<clears throat> Fortunately, they've not put me in charge of any of that. But there's a real strategic problem, and I don't think it's a secret, but everybody, and I'm, you know, you've got to admire the courage of the Ukrainian people. There's no question about that. And I don't doubt that this is what America would be like if that day ever came, but there's a strategic flaw in how they're doing things. If you put everything on the inside and all you do is defend yourself, sooner or later, you run out of gas, you run out of bullets, you run out of food, and you run out of people to fight. The only way to win a war, again, I'm not running a war, I'm talking spiritually, but the only way to win a war is to go on the offensive. When you go to Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, and you look at the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the shoes of peace, which had, which had cleats that dug backwards on the back of a Roman soldier, nothing. Where's the battle? It's in front. <clears throat> so this Roman soldier was never meant to play defense. And if he turned around to run, he's going to die. And the church, I just, I, this was such a, I just can see the church today, the churches that I see Christians, they're in this same struggle that they put on the armor of God. I'm a Christian, I'm in church, I'm doing my thing, but everything you do is defensive. And so we watch Christians shrivel up and eventually die. We watch churches shrivel up and eventually die. Because the church was never meant to be a defensive weapon. Jesus said the gates of hell will not be able to stand up against the church of Jesus Christ. And we've almost taken that to be, well, okay, the, the gates are there and we're going to stay inside and be safe. No, no, no. The church's job is to charge the gates of hell. So while Satan's been doing all that he's doing to destroy the church of Jesus in Poland, in Romania, in the United States, has been partnering together, and we fight the battle on the offensive. So if you're one of those people who thinks, well, I'm just going to hunker down and be a Christian, you've missed the whole point. Because it's just a matter of time with a hunkered down Christian until you shrivel up and die. And there's only a matter of time if a church takes that attitude that they shrivel up and die because we were not meant for defense. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 4. Remember the story in chapter 3. We've had the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God came. Uh, Peter and John are coming back to the temple the next day. And there's a... There's a crippled man there. He's been there for 40 years begging at the gate. And Peter and John say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy goes walking and leaping and praising God. And the whole place goes crazy. Another 2,000 men except Jesus were really making progress. Except anything, anytime Jesus does something great, there's always religious people that will show up to tell you why it's wrong. Okay? That's what happens in Acts 4. If you'll stand out of respect for God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to look at the first 13 verses here. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. 5,000 men, 10 or 15,000 women, 30 or 40,000 kids. The next day, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. They called a board meeting over this man that's been healed. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas and John, all the big dogs, Alexander and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Now we're in the principal's office. By what power, and this is the title of the sermon, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, we'll twist, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You can be seated. So if you've got something to write on, if you're writing in your journal, you're taking notes on your phone, I hope you'll deal with this. We're going to make the application right, for, right up front. That last phrase. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. What would your life look like? What changes in your life do you need to make so that people look at you and they say, He's been with Jesus. Because they know you went to church, but then they still see how we act. They know you went to church, but then they still hear our words. What changes do I need to make? What changes do you need to make? And write that down in your journal. Be honest. Hey, here's, here's four things that if I did these four things or stopped these two and started these two, the world, my friends, my neighbors would look at me very differently and they would realize that I have been with Jesus. I didn't just go to church. All right, there's your application. Now let's talk about the passage. What power? <clears throat> All right, this is funny. All right. They're on trial, so, so to speak. They've been arrested. They're put in jail for doing what heinous crime? For healing a crippled man, a man who's been crippled for 40 years, a man who they've walked by, no doubt, and stayed away from so they wouldn't have to give money because these are the elite, okay? Somebody's kept this guy alive, but I'll guarantee you it wasn't these religious elite people, okay? Because they would assume this guy was a sinner and they would have wanted nothing to do with him. And I love it how Peter says that. So let me get this right. We're on trial for an act of kindness we did to a crippled man. He turns it on him, right? By what power, or look at the rest of the question, by what power or what name 
Now, who would ask that question? Why would you ask that unless you knew the answer? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Peter's a guy that all through the three and a half years he's with Jesus got his foot in his mouth. Every time Peter said, you're like, oh, no, Peter, don't do it. Don't do it. But he does. And then when he's at the campfire, the night that Jesus is arrested, he denies three times. He's cursing at a little girl. Crazy, right? Forty days later, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks up. And he said, look, if we're on trial because we helped this guy, he said, you do need to know something. It has nothing to do with Peter and John. It has everything to do with Jesus. And Jesus, the one you crucified, yeah, he's the one that healed him. Now, be very careful. This is not a passage. This could be preached a lot of ways. This is not a passage to say, see, you and I should be out there healing people. Look, if you've got a gift to heal people, then by all means, you need to do it. But don't tell me that this is some special gift and if the people had enough faith, they'd be healed. That guy didn't have a lick of faith. All he wants is gold and silver. All right, so don't give me that line. If God's given you a gift, by all means, use it. Go to the hospitals and empty the hospitals. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Peter and John were empowered by Jesus to bring healing to this man. And they make sure that they get no credit. All right, you'll notice they did not start Peter and John ministries. You just ponder that. They said, no, this was done in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus. All right. So that's, that's where we start this message. The power that you crucified. The name of Jesus. That's the one. He's the one that brings salvation into the world. Now, again, you've got to think maybe there's a chink in their armor. Because... Yeah, they could have killed Peter and John, but they don't. They warn them. They threaten them. But as you read a little further in the story, you find out they've got a real problem. They're like, we would like to tell the people this didn't happen, but dang it, we saw it. And we'd like to, we'd like to say this didn't happen, but there he is right there. Talk about media trying to blow smoke past people. See, it's always been there. Here's a man that's been healed, his life has been transformed, and the, quote, religious people, spiritual people, political people of the day, they want to bury the whole thing because it impacts their power. And let me explain the Sadducees to you. All right, there's, uh, Republican Democrat doesn't really work with Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees, but sort of the same idea. It's a political party, but they're spiritual parties. But they are that divergent, and they have a lot of animosity toward each other. In fact, Paul gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees into a fight at one part. We'll see that later in the book of Acts. He gets them into a fight because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees don't. That's why they were sad, you see. That... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But even... And they are, they are so known for knowing the Word of God. 
So they should have known about the resurrections of the dead with Elijah and Elisha. There's other places in the Old Testament, but the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. So this whole story of a resurrected Jesus, even though they've seen him and it's been confirmed now through the healing of this guy, it doesn't fit their curriculum. Then Peter quotes a great verse. He said, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now that looks really odd. If you're in there, if you read your homework this week, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Well, it's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. Um, it's used here by Luke. And Peter uses this when you go over to 1 Peter. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Let me just tell you the story. You historians feel free to look this up. When they were building Solomon's temple about a thousand BC, there, there was not a sound of construction that was ever heard in Jerusalem. All the rocks, again, we're talking about, um, I don't know, not this big, but it's, it's a big building. All right. Can you imagine a building, this just say the size of this worship center, the whole thing, but there was not a sound of building. They had to cut all the rock. All the rock was cut by hand. Huge stones that are built. All the gold has to be smelted and made. All the cedar has to be cut. All of the forms have to be made to make the candlesticks and all, all of the other things. But all of that was done off-site. None of it was done in Jerusalem. So they would quarry the rock. The guy's got a plan over there. And miles away, he's sending in the stone, and they're building the temple. Well, early on, they get a, a stone, and the, at this building site, the guy says, this stone does not fit. Why did he send me this? And they take the stone, and they just throw it over into the woods. When they finally finish the temple, remember what it took, three years? I don't know, you can look it up. When they finally got down to finishing the temple... Everything was there but the final stone. And the builder happened to remember that stone that had come in years ago. What the cutter had done is he cut the cornerstone, the foundation of the building, and the capstone, the finishing stone, he cut them at the same time to make sure that if the beginning and the end was right, that they would get the middle right. And they went and found the stone that they'd thrown into the woods and they brought it out, and that was the capstone. He uses that analogy. The stone the builders threw away has become the capstone. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's the whole message of the cross. The whole message of the blood that was shed is that it's by the power of the capstone. Doesn't it say Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega? He's the beginning and the... But a lot of people reject what? I believe in God. Okay, there's the cornerstone. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you been baptized? Are you following Jesus? No, I haven't done that. That's the capstone. Jesus is the capstone. So it's not only that opening power there, the power that you crucified, but the power that brings salvation. And just one verse, Acts 4.12. 4, I don't know how you could be any clearer. All right? Now, you can choose not to believe the Bible. You're welcome to do that. That's the beauty of free will. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. 
other than the name of Jesus. And I listen to preachers every week saying, there's no way that's true. In fact, they'll say, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says anything like that. And, you know, I'd like to get them to read the Bible. But Acts 4.12, could it be any clearer? There's only one name under heaven. So rather than arguing about, well, what about that guy in that tribe in Brazil? Why don't you wonder about your soul that's either going to go to heaven or hell? Why don't you worry about your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers? Because you and I know the answer. Now, the real answer to the guy in Brazil is somebody ought to get there too. And we're working on that. We're working on that. But there is salvation found in no other name. Now, look, either that is a complete lie and you can pick any religion and anything will do, or there is only one way. But both, you can't have Jesus in the pantheon. It's either Jesus and that's it, or it can be everything else and not Jesus, but you can't have it both ways. Acts 2.36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, the same God whom you crucified. Jesus has made both Lord and Christ, the anointed one, the Savior. Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the life I now live, I no longer live by, for myself, but for the one who gave his life for me. be a great verse to memorize. Because once I'm crucified with Christ, my only goal is to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus. That's what we see at the end of this passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the, it's the power of God for salvation. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Now, let me let, go back and read Romans 1. There's a Canadian pastor in jail right now because he read Romans 1 publicly. There's a senator in Finland that's in jail right now because she read Romans 1 publicly for violating homosexual laws. But if you read Romans 1, there will be nothing left because Paul calls out every sin that is out there. People say, well, the Bible really doesn't say much about this. Read Romans 1. Read Romans 1. And then after Paul has blistered the Romans, because, listen, the Roman society was very similar to our society. All right? Pretty upper, upper middle class, able to do what they wanted. Even the poor people did well. They had circuses and food and whatever. Life was pretty good. And what happens when you get into that? Indulgence and sexual sin. And that's where they went. And Paul tears them apart. And then he said... Just in case you're wondering, I'm not ashamed to tell you the truth. Because you need Jesus. Can you be forgiven from all this? Absolutely. But you need Jesus. So I don't know what it is with you, but are you ashamed? Or you say, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I'll stand. And listen, people take this wrong. I don't dislike anybody. I love you enough to tell you the truth. People think because I disagree with something you do that I don't like you. You know what? There's a lot of things I disagree with myself. There's things I don't like about myself, but I, but I don't hate myself. 
There's a fine line between saying, you know what, this is not right, but I can still love you. Does that make sense to anybody? All right. Don't let people put you into a hole. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And then we get to the real money. This last one, I, I just love this. It is the power to use ordinary people. They couldn't figure it out. They're like, I mean, the whole council's there. When they list those names, every big shot in Jerusalem is sitting at the table. And they get called before. They, my guess is Peter and John never met any of these guys before because these guys are the elite. And all of a sudden, they're in the palace in the principal's office. And here's all these guys, by name, all the elders of Israel saying, well, you're not going to do this anymore. We don't want you to talk about this Jesus guy anymore. And they kept looking at Peter and John. And they said, these guys are unschooled, ordinary men. Now, unschooled means that they were unlettered. Right? No college. Well, we can go further than that. How about illiterate is really what the word means. He's like, well, but we've got First and Second Peter. We do indeed, but Peter didn't write them. In fact, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you with me? Mark, that's Peter's story. Peter couldn't write. Peter told the story. Mark wrote it down. Because Peter's illiterate. And that's not lost on these guys. These guys have all the PhDs. These guys are the brilliant ones, and they're like... These, these are illiterate. And then I looked up the word ordinary. Let's see how you guys do in Greek. The Greek word is idios. Can anybody help me with that translation? These guys are illiterate idiots. All right. That's the assessment of the religious group. And yet 5,000 men have been started following Jesus because of these religious idiots. 30 or 40,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. A man's been healed before them. And they said, but the one thing we have to admit is that they've been with Jesus. Listen, I'm not against education. I got a pile of it. Some of it's worth, it's worth a little bit. Most of it's worth nothing. But it's amazing the more education people get the less passionate they are about the call that God has given to us. So I don't know where you're at. You can't be with Jesus until you accept Jesus. So if you've not done that, there's a button you can push. I've decided you come up here. Uh, counselors will be here to meet you, to pray with you, to answer questions. <clears throat> Maybe you need to turn your life around. You need to, you need to uh, be baptized. I, I don't know what it is, where you're at in your relationship. They're here to help you. Um, for the rest of us, if we've got all this power working in us, what are we doing with it? What are you doing with the power that God... God's given you the power to teach, why aren't you teaching? God's given you the power to give, why aren't you giving? God's given you the power to pray, why aren't you doing more praying? Whatever, whatever that is. But the kicker for me, and it's circled, and I wrote myself a note on my prayer journal, Joe, what does it look like for you to show people? That you've been with Jesus. Father, I pray that we would grab a hold of this today. I don't know who you need to speak to. Somebody online, somebody in here, somebody be watching later. 
And I have no idea what your Holy Spirit's up to. But I'm asking you to meet each soul right where it is. And whatever decision needs to be made, that we will grab a hold of the power, not of Joe Ministries, but of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. We thank you in Jesus' name.